Hi, I'm your host, Mo Lutsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest today, the extraordinary Lita Braga. So Lita uh, is the founder and CEO of Systematica Investments. Prior to forming Systematica, Lita was the president and head of systematic trading at Bluecrest Capital Management, which is uh, one of Europe's largest and most prominent hedge funds. And people took particular notice of Lita, or at least I think, when in 2008, her funds at Bluecrest returned something like 43%, while the rest of the market was experiencing losses of you know, uh, more or less equal magnitude. And prior to Bluecrest, Lita worked at Signified Derivative Services and JP Morgan, where she was responsible for derivatives and a wide range of financial instruments. Lita holds a PhD in engineering from Imperial College London, where she worked as a lecturer and led uh, research projects prior to joining JP Morgan. And Lita is widely regarded as an innovator in the trend following arena and has been frequently referred to as the most powerful woman in hedge funds and currently operating one of the largest, perhaps if not the largest female run hedge fund in the world. So ladies and gentlemen, it gives me tremendous pleasure to welcome the one and only Lita Brada. Lita, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for this fantastic introduction. Gosh, now I really need to live up to it, don't I? <laughs> it's fantastic to be here and to be given this opportunity. Let's uh, make it useful to people, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And you've already lived up to it, but let, let's just, uh, we'll try to make it shine. So for starters, you know, and we've spoken before and, you know, I your accent come across and I can't exactly place it. It seems like it's a confluence of countries. I never asked you this, but could you tell us a little bit about your background and your personal journey? I, I'm familiar uh, with where it starts with your PhD at Imperial College and then becoming the youngest lecturer ever. You know, uh, tell, tell us a bit, a bit about your background that got you to that point. Yeah, right. So, so I was born in Brazil uh, and then I, I came to the UK to study and, uh, and started, finished my PhD and started an academic career, as you point out, at Imperial College. Um, and, uh, and I stayed there for about three and a half years. Uh, actually, it, it was a, a lovely place, a fantastic place in Imperial, right? But, but it was a lovely career, academic career was great. But at some point I wanted something more commercial. And so the whole derivatives movement, the whole derivatives world was changing around me. I was in London. And so I went to JP Morgan and that was uh, 1993, I think. And so from then it was a financial career, uh, several years at JP Morgan. And then I moved uh, to Signify, which was a JP Morgan spin-off, but then to the buy side in 2001. And so it's 20 years of, uh, of being on the asset management side. And, and as for the accent, so I was born in Brazil, but um, my, my husband of uh, 27 years is Canadian. So uh, you probably pick up a bit of a Canadian accent in me. He's from, uh, from Ontario. So there oh, you wow. go. Yeah. Okay, really close to home. But I, so let me, let me double down on, on, on something you said. So you went from being this professor, academic and engineer to derivative trading at JP Morgan. So you know, if not for any additional context, at least give us some, you know, insights and learnings that kind of came from that background and unique experience that you kind of carry with you today. 
Yeah, that's right. So, so uh, you know, the, there is a, there is some some sort of a, a contradiction in principle between being an engineer and being an academic. I think you know because if you're an engineer, you really want to solve commercial problems, and and to do research in academia sort of implies that you you are free and you like to investigate topics for the intellectual value without without being pressurized into applications and commercial applications and and that's a little bit of what i felt you know I, doing research in the academic environment was a, a fantastic thing very challenging and, and very rewarding but but i missed the commercial pressure and and if you were in london in the early 90s london was really at the center of this derivatives world in finance, which was kind of being reborn and, 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 and then really taking off. And so organizations like JP Morgan were then hiring people with a strong mathematical background to work on modeling. And so it was in that way. So, so the skills that I saw it were uh, coding and, and writing equations and, and, and modeling things you know, talking to people about a problem and then coding up that problem, equating that problem mathematically, which, you know, it, it was exactly what I had been doing. And so, you know, there were some differences. It was a commercial environment. It was a bank. But JP Morgan uh, was a very intellectually driven organization. I'm sure it still is. And, uh, and, and there were my colleagues there were very, very well qualified, you know, people who could have had an academic career as well. And so the, the modeling side of JP Morgan was, you know, there were some heavy weights in terms of modeling skills there, but, but that's what I did. So we were all doing yield curve modeling, options pricing, you know, exotic options, the, the credit markets developed around that time and they came out of the research group of JP Morgan. Concepts like value at risk came out of the JP Morgan team. And so, you know, these were people that had good mathematical skills and were applying them to finance. And, and so, okay, so that took you to, you know, that modeling took you into the world of quantitative investing. Um, maybe for the uninitiated on the call, could you just explain in simple terms what, how you would define quantitative investing and what's different, how is it different than you know, a discretionary trading approach that that people may have seen elsewhere. Yeah. So, so how how is it different? You know, if if you think about a tree of possibilities of of how what what are the possibilities to to that you have to implement investment at the top node of that tree, the the very top node of that tree, discretionary managers and quantitative managers look the same because we are all in the business of making using data using information to make good appropriate investment decisions for our clients right i mean whether you're discretionary or you're quantitative your client has given you some money your client has given you some parameters i want you to focus on markets a b and c and i want you to never lose more than this much money because my drawdown appetite is this much so at the top level we do the same we we look at data and information to make good investment decisions for investors the the discretionary approach then differs from the the systematic approach in that the systematic approach articulates that decision making through algorithms so 
you know, if, if you talk to a discretionary trader, a discretionary manager, he might tell you about his trading ideas and, and he might tell you that he's bought this because he really thinks this will go up and it's mispriced. If you talk to the quantitative manager, he tends not to talk about the ideas that are live, but rather this strategy buys things when they look cheap. They look cheap if variables A, B, C, and D look this way or that way. So, so in other words, the quantitative manager is forced to articulate the process because it's almost like for us quantitative managers, the investment process has its own life. You know, it's not later making the decisions, it's the team structuring a process, coding it up and letting that process get on with it. Now, if you listen, so good investors have a lot of method and process to them, right? Mm -hmm. As you know, when it comes to due diligence calls and questions, allocators often ask, what is your investment process? And, and discretionary managers will, will come up with an investment. So if you listen, for example, Warren Buffett, if you listen to his interviews, super methodical man, right? You know, he talks about how he identifies the opportunities for investment, how he rates them. He just never bothered coding it all up. He does it by hand, if you like. But, but so that is, that's the main difference, is that we articulate the process formally, and then the process gains a life of its own, because now there is a process, it's, it's coded up. Then, so, so at the top level, same thing, we're all looking at data and information to try to make good investment decisions for our investors. And then the, the, the quantitative guys articulated more explicitly. Now, then the, there's some other differences that, that, that result from that. Because we articulate the process explicitly, the process that we have can run a million trade ideas at any one time, right? The discretionary guy, if he's doing it manually, he can only keep in his mind. I mean, the literature says that typically traders have in mind six, about six themes. So, so the discretionary guy will be more concentrated in his approach because, because he needs to keep it in his mind. Whereas we, you know, we can really be diversified in the way that we deploy the approach because it's all being accounted for and monitored and traded in a more automated fashion. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the intrinsic difference is this articulation of the process. From there, you derive some other differences, such as the quantitative process tends to be more diversified. We tend to hold more positions in more assets at any one time. Another difference that you find, you mentioned that in 2008, one of the programs that we run uh, did very, very well. Another difference that the quantitative process uh, carries is the fact that when the markets are in crisis, it's almost like, you know, we are driving through this road and the storm has hit and it's raining like crazy and your windshield wipers are really trying to clean the, 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 the glass for you. We have a GPS on, don't we? The quantitative people have a GPS on because, because you know the process. So, so, you know, there is a chance that when the market crisis hits, Mm -hmm. We will be one different from the discretionary guy, two perhaps more controlled and less emotional. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a discretionary trader and the market crisis hits, a lot of discretionary traders simply take risk off. 
they take risk off the table and they say, well, I'm not taking this. Well, sometimes that is the right thing to do, but sometimes it isn't. And 2008 was one such example. You know, we, we questioned ourselves and we came to the table many times to ask whether we should cut the risk on the program that we were running. But, but we had a very objective conversation about this. So the guys in the team would say, oh, later we have to cut the risk. The market is going mad. I would say to them, listen, imagine we're sitting at this meeting table. Imagine the investors sitting there with us. They're paying us to do a job. What, what is the reason why we're going to cut the risk? What is the reason why we have to stop what we're doing? And people would then say, oh, because volatility is very high. Well, wait, volatility is high, but it's one of the inputs of, of our models. So our models are adapting to that. Oh, transaction costs are very high. Well, we calibrate transaction costs all the time. So that's no excuse that the models know. So, you know, in most cases, we concluded that we should continue with the process, monitor things, no complacency, don't take anything for granted, but carry on with the process. So because the GPS was on, we carried on the route and, and we were able to deliver very good returns when investors really needed it. The, the discretionary colleagues, even in Blue Crest at the time, the, a lot of our discretionary colleagues, they just took risk off, right? So they didn't lose, but they didn't make any money. And of course, investors were really relying on some people to make some money for them. So that, that is a good example. Right. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about your own, your flagship fund. So your flagship fund, uh, Blue Trend, I believe that's the one you've been under your management the longest, correct? The longest, that's right, yeah. So, um, so for starters, it's a commodity trading advisor, a CTA, it's a quantitative strategy. Yeah. Could you maybe share with us a, how it has evolved over the years? How do you see CTAs evolving in the years ahead? And maybe one other thing if is just CTAs, commodity trading advisors did spectacularly well, you know, sort of in immediately post-crisis, but then had, had a number of difficult years. How do you, how do you see uh, investors holding on to these strategies in their portfolios over time? How, have, how do you think about it? Yeah, so the so Blue Trend is a great story to, to concentrate on because it's such a long-standing fund, right? It's been going for, for 20 years. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, first of all, uh, I, I will tell you, you know that, that here in Systematica, we operate on various different styles, right? We have equity funds, we have, we have derivatives funds. So CTAs are just one of them, but, but you are right that Blue Trend is the longest uh, running fund that, that we have. And, and because of that, it's, it's, it's had such a long life uh, that, that it's gone through ups and downs and it's, it's taught us many things. So, so Blue Trend, Blue Trend is a CTA, right? What is a CTA? Well, CTA is sort of commodity trading advisors. It, the, the, the name is used to describe managed futures programs. So programs that are traded mostly through futures. If you were a quant, trader or a quant team, you know, probably managed futures is one of the first styles you will try because the data is relatively easy to get hold of, right? If you're going to trade derivatives, FX options, equity options, or you're going to trade yield curves, or you're going to trade Chinese market, the data is more difficult to get. So if you're a quant trying to, to you know, make a debut in the, in the quantitative market, that managed futures are, are a good place to start. And so managed futures or CTAs are possibly the longest running flavor of quantitative strategies. 
And so what have we seen with Blue Trend? What, what is it that people like about CTA funds? They, they like CTAs because they, they have learned over, over time that they tend to deliver excellent returns when markets are under stress. And so they look at CTAs in the context of a portfolio because, because CTAs don't have a particularly high sharp ratio, right? So they, they have a kind of a, you, you work very hard to retain a sharp ratio of around what? 0.81, 1.2, but, but not, not a particularly high sharp ratio strategy. And so what investors like about it is that it's very complementary to, to, for example, an equities allocation. So if I, I hold a, a bunch of equities, it's nice to have some CTAs with it because sure. the CTA returns will be low correlation with traditional asset classes such as equities. But that low correlation, which is average low correlation, is delivered with bursts of negative correlation at times of market stress. Oh, wow, super desirable, right? So the thing has positive expectation of return, so it'll carry positively. And it is a little bit of an insurance policy because, because if equity markets suffer, I hope this thing will actually come to life and deliver me some good returns like it did in, in 2008. Right. And so it's the insurance policy that I don't have to pay for, right? It's a fantastic proposition. And, uh, and so this is what people tend to use CTAs for. It's a very popular strategy. I mean, these days when investors are super worried about equity drawdown mitigation. They're, they're going away from bonds because they feel that bonds are very toppy and, and they're holding more and more equities. And so we've been having a lot of conversations about CTAs. CTAs have really come uh, into fashion back again. And so this is how investors look at it. Well, sounds wonderful, right? Insurance policy that I don't have to pay for and I put it in my portfolio and it has a positive expectation of return. What is the catch? Well, as you point out, the catch is that from the financial crisis onwards, this ability of the strategy to deliver positive returns every year was somewhat challenged. The, the bursts of negative correlation were always there. So if the thing, if equity markets were under stress, you could watch our CTA returns and they were always very good. But then sometimes that those returns would be given back. And, and by the time you looked at the whole year, it wasn't an 8% or a 10% up year, it was a few percent or maybe small down. So that ability to deliver, to harvest the, the, the returns on an ongoing basis, to deliver some return every year consistently, and these periods of negative correlation was somewhat challenged. So, so that's what, what's interesting about Blue Trend, that, that you know, we've really fought back with research. You know, I mean, if you look at Blue Trend now, the models that we run in there are so much more sophisticated. So it's a bit like, in 2003, 2004, when we launched Blue Trend, the models that we had were perfectly adequate. They, they responded well, they captured the signal well. Yeah, markets have evolved, more participants, you know, you have these risk on and risk off days, which, you know, the, the phrase risk on, risk off didn't even exist back in the 90s when, when I was part of the trading floor. So, so certain things in the markets have changed. Right. And, and sure enough, in, in some of our peers and, and competitors actually abandoned the strategy. So oh, this is never going to work again. You know, we kind of, the scientists in us really came to life, you know. Gee, you know, I've got to be able to sort it out. You know, the signal is there. Let's work out different ways of evaluating the signal. So, so we've updated the models 
you know, it's super interesting stuff. If we were in academia, we'd be publishing, I'll tell you, because it's fantastic stuff. And, and these new models that we've got in there have been performing really well. And Blue Trend has had a fantastic run in the last two, three years. It's outperformed the index by a margin. And, uh, and it's exciting to see. So, so back to your question, uh, how, how do people look at CTAs? They look at CTAs as complementary to a, a, a large allocation to equities, which is a good way to look at it. The, the CTAs have always been like that, all of them. And some of them started to have difficulty delivering the positive carry, like, a, you know, it's the insurance policy that I get paid to hold. It's the get paid to hold that was a bit difficult. The insurance payout was coming, but I needed to pay. And, and you know, research has really proved to be the, the medicine because, because, and so I guess in the 20 year life of Blue Trend, you can see the full cycle, right? Something that works really well, everybody loves it. The crisis comes along, the thing delivers like crazy. Then it starts to falter, then we panic, then we sit around the table and a couple of years of, you know, really doing the research is a decision, right? You know, the, the researchers don't necessarily know, Leda, shall we persevere with this or shall we do something else? No, 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 come on. We've got to sort out trend following because it's, it's interesting for the clients. The clients need it. And I think we've achieved something really good in that fund, actually. Yeah, no, I, you absolutely have. I guess what I'm curious about is you could refine the models and make it more uh, effective, efficient, uh, uh, reliable. I guess what, I, what I'd love to understand from you is how do you manage not the research, not the, the strength of the model, but the psychology of your investors where they can't necessarily explain why something is doing what it's doing. And so I think, um, where I think both of us have seen people panic and abandon ship is they just can't explain it so that they so they get nervous and they get frantic and yes it paid them very well during crisis but then all of a sudden in either more benign times and it's like the worst performing and even you know in rate in uh, uh, markets that are booming it's kind of like the least attractive thing in the portfolio they're sitting there like why am I doing this let me hold it <laughs> just dump. how do you manage the psychology of people and I think the other thing that I'd love to get your perspective on is, um, you know, there was a lot of people have sort of uh, almost relegated some of these strategies to like this uh, black box approach. And you've been very vocal about correcting that misnomer. You know, how, how do you, how, what do you say when people sort of broach that subject that way with you? So number one, how do you manage the psychology? Number two, how do you kind of demystify that notion or myth of a black box strategy yeah so so two questions there let me take the the black box one first so you, we started off by talking about the differences between the quantitative trade and the systematic trader and i i was telling you that i the, the the core difference is that we are forced to articulate our process very explicitly in a very detailed way i mean how can we be the black box we are not the black box right it, it's it's really unfair you know i i always say that i say look you know just because an industry has an intellectual property angle to it you know we can't be disclosing the equations that we use publicly otherwise everybody will do it but but i always tell investors ask whatever you want and i i often say we will answer any question verbally. I might not send you 
the notes that we have with all our equations, because you know, once you send an, an, a document in electronic format, goodness knows where it ends up, but, but, but we will answer any question. And so, and so I think that people have to, um, my, 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 my ask or my, my suggestion would be as an allocator, ask yourself, you know, are you just taking, are you just deriving emotional comfort from talking to a discretionary trader that tells you, oh, I, I bought oil because I really think it's going up. And, and that is making you think that he's more transparent than us. Is that fair? No, that's really not fair. You know, we, we will tell you the data that we're using, how we're sizing positions. And I always tell investors, look, you know, anytime if you need a snapshot of positions or a big day in the market and you want to call us and find out what's going on, pick up the phone and call us. You know, we are at the end of a line. You know, we, we are here. We work for you guys. And so, you know, and, and many investors have taken me up on that, you know, and, and, and so and so my, my campaign is that, you know, if anything, we, we are the, the white box or the transparent box, not the black box. And, uh, and I, I try very hard to do that. Then um, on the, the psychology front, that, that is interesting, right? Because, um, you know, I have a colleague in the industry who I used to laugh at him, but, but he used to say that to me. And, and now I've adopted that line. He says, Leda, we're not, we're not the stupidest people around. We're not the smartest, but we're not the stupidest people around. Chances are any investment that you decide to make will make you money in the long run if you can stomach the drawdown, okay? And I kind of think, you know, I used to laugh at this and I kind of thought, he's onto something, right? Because the job that we have is to dimension the risk so that the drawdown can be lived with by the client mm -hmm. without challenging their trust. So, so their trust in us is about the limit of the, the drawdown that, that we can, that we can make that client go through. And, and if that drawdown comes, then we need to, we really get on the phone, you know, we, we share information, we show that we're monitoring things because, because as, as you know, making investment decisions half-heartedly and, and abandoning strategies in the middle of the drawdown is a sure way to lose money, right? I remember once I was, um, I was in a conference, a financial conference, and uh, the speaker before me was uh, Daniel Kahneman. You know Daniel Kahneman, the, the man who uh, wrote uh, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? And he got the Nobel Prize. And, and I think he's the only person that got the Nobel Prize in, in economics without being an economist, right? Anyway, so, so Daniel Kahneman got asked, just before I went on stage, he actually got asked the same question. But, well, you know, if you're an investor, what and, and he actually replied by saying, I don't know much about investment, but I will tell you one thing, you're probably supposed to make your investment decisions carefully and then walk away from it and just come back many years later. And so then when I went on stage, I said, I am a quantitative uh, manager, but I didn't pay him to say that, you know, he said that by himself because I thought it was a great introduction. So, you know, the, the systems of thinking that we have in ourselves, emotions are not good for analyzing investment because think about it. There's a, a pile of data. The data is quite objective, right? You know, you can assess companies, you can assess markets, you can assess liquidity. And then there's some amount of randomness in stock markets, in financial securities. That randomness, noise, will create emotions in you. 
And, and are your emotions likely to be a good way to make investment decisions? Really, no, not at all, right? And so, and so what you say about the psychology of it's super important, right? Super important that our investors trust what we're doing. You know, we try to communicate plenty. If, if a, a fund is going through a tough patch, we double up on communication. You know, I think uh, uh, a lot of investors have been with us a very long time. In fact, a couple of very large, very known institutional investors have told me recently that we are the oldest position they hold in, in, in the hedge fund portfolio, which made me very happy. And so, but, but it, it's part of the job. I mean, when an investor loses the confidence and, and redeems, it's, uh, it, it's terrible, right? It's terrible for us, it's terrible for them. And so it's a matter of retaining the trust, being super, I mean, overdo it. We overdo it on the communication front if we are going through a tough patch because, because we need them to know that we care. And then, you know, ideally the investor then understands that it's just possible that we care a lot more than they do even, even though it's their money, right? You know, we care like crazy. And so if he thinks that, that their problem is, is whether they'll keep us or fire us, it, they've got to believe that we've got a much bigger problem because we're in charge of their money and they're trying to make a good job, do a good job for them. Yeah. And so it, it's keeping the trust, right? And so let me let me just uh, again go a little deeper on what you just said. So it sounds like you know the quant approach implicitly suggests that sort of tactical decision making is is often flawed, um, and uh, because there's so many variables and all of the noise that surrounds those variables and our ability to kind of decipher which uh, which data points are meaningful, which are not. So, and, and by the way, this is not just an investment related trend. I mean, data-driven algorithms are driving so much innovation in so many other industries. Yeah. How do you see it playing out in the asset management industry specifically? Like, do you envision more and more of the, or the entirety of the asset management industry being quant-driven over time or more data-driven? Um, and, and, and if so, what edge? do you see an asset manager having in that environment? So a lot, a lot there, you could start wherever you think yeah. makes the most sense. Yeah, look, so, so we, you were right. That there is a lot of change afoot, right? Because uh, people have become much more accepting of the idea of data-driven decision-making, right? You know, the first time I, I heard this phrase, data-driven decision-making, I actually said to myself, is there any other kind? And, you know, over time, how stupid of me, of course, Leda, most decision making is done emotionally, not data driven. So, you know, but, but I think slowly but surely people are becoming more data driven because data is staring everybody in the face, right? So you're going to book a holiday, you check the reviews, you, 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 do, you use a price comparison engine, you, you know, so, so data driven decision making is becoming more you know, prevalent. And, mm -hmm. and what we do, you know, good, unbiased, objective investment decision-making should be data-driven. And yes, I, I think you were right. If, if you, emotions are on average, just a, a noise around the, the investment decision-making that should be happening. And, and I do think that as, the other, the other comment is this, right? 
a lot of the pools of capital in the world have been suffering a lot with very depressed risk-free rates, right? So the, the interest rates have been so low. And so there's a lot of pressure in the professional asset management industry to reduce fees, right? Now, if you're going to charge as low a fee as possible, you need to be scalable. And the, the investment process of the quant approach is naturally scalable, right? You know, mm -hmm. you can handle larger amounts of money because you, you've parametrized all of your transaction costs, your liquidity parameters. You know what is going to happen to your returns when you turn up the size dial. Mm -hmm. And so that is another, another effect that promotes the quant trading, right? And so, yes, in answer to your question, things are changing. Uh, Data-driven decision-making is becoming more prevalent. And I do believe this industry will be all quant-driven in, in 10 years' time, in a few years' time even. Because not only people are accepting it more, it is the more responsible, more appropriate way to take investment decisions. And third factor, it promotes lower fees, which the professional uh, asset management community desperately needs. So yes, I do think that, you know, it, there's always room for the discretionary ideas. And, and you know, we are all people, you know, we are all uh, coding up these ideas and, 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 and coding up the strategy. So, you know, the, 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 the idea of a self-driven car, right? So the self-driven car drives itself. There's no self-driven strategy, right? Because there's too much noise in the data, right? If I need to drive from here to the airport, there's only so much amount of randomness in that process, right? The, the roads are what they are. I have photographs. I have imagery of those photographs. I can monitor the cars around me and the car can drive itself. Strategy building requires some understanding of markets because if you're just going to imply what the relationship between the securities is from the data, you will actually get a lot of false positives. You're going to find that the, the famous correlation between the price of tea in China and the S&P, and then your computer is going to think that there's money to be made there. That yeah. doesn't work. So, so the self-driven fund, I don't think, is ever going to happen because there's too much randomness in the markets. But the quantitative approach in general is the future of the industry because, because it's more objective, it's more robust, unbiased, and, and promotes scalability, which promotes lower fees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and, you know, the, uh, so just, I just want to pick up on one thing you said, you know, as algorithms start to take over, but they, algorithms can't fully account for randomness in markets either. So you do need some judgment, some human intervention. Yeah. yeah. So how does that, how does that interplay occur? Yeah. So, so, so algorithms are, are very good at doing a very specific task, right? The, the task of, assessing a signal, like, is this stock performing better on this metric? I mean, are these consumer goods companies, which one is the one that is selling most efficiently? Which one is the one that is more? These are things that I can do. They're very specific things. The very unspecific thing is to say, here's a pile of money, go and deliver me 10% return a year on a volatility of 10%. That is not that is not a computer will not manage to do that for you because there's too much randomness in the data right mm -hmm. and so and so 
And so, yes, the, the, the role of human beings is to really assess intuitively and, and also uh, from um, an investment thesis perspective, what is the relationship that we're trying to monetize here, right? What is the relationship? What, you know, why should moves in this market affect that market? And why should that market go up? Or why should that spread tighten? There has to be a, a rationale. There has to be a proper reason behind it. Not only it, that is necessary for, for then developing the mathematical approach that will capture that, but also that helps you in the drawdown, right? You know, when if, if a strategy draws down and you have absolutely no idea why you had that bet on, then you know you never knew why you had it in the first place. Why should you keep it? So, so, so you need to know what is it that 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 strategy is betting on. What is the investment thesis? You know, and and how you measure that investment thesis? That. You know, that you can really rely on a computer to do. So, you know, which companies are the ones that look cheap at the moment? Well, you know, that's kind of the investment thesis of the value investment. There's lots of different ways to assess that. Maybe you should assess the value of a company differently if it's a technology company. Maybe you should assess the value of a company differently if it's an internet company. But, but, but these are things that you can then work on. That's the mathematical modeling, but the investment thesis is, is value. Right. Or, you know, some country spread, or, you know, why, why, should, why should you belong US equities versus UK equities? You know, you can assess that. But. So let me actually, that's, that's a good segue um, uh, to one of your recent theses, which I, I, I was reading about. Um, you've sort of become more active in China uh, over the last number of years. Could you talk a little bit about that thesis and how are you approaching your investments in China distinctly from other investments and, and what do you view as some of the benefits and challenges of that approach? Yeah, so, so China is, is actually a big area of investment and, and activity for us and mostly uh, motivated by dialogue with clients, right? So a lot of our clients are now you know, contemplating, you know, they realize it's, a, it's an enormous economy. It's a it's, it should be a big um, uh, participant alongside the US in, in, in the global economic development. And so they want access to it. And so we, we have a couple of funds that we run, which are Chinese specialists. One is in commodities and the other one is in equities. And uh, China, what are the difficulties with China? Well, first of all, practical difficulty when you when you are a quant like us, getting hold of the data is not trivial, uh, and we've had to acquaint ourselves with the local providers, and and we've had to we've actually set up a small office in Shanghai. So getting hold of the data is not trivial. Uh, then understanding the trading mechanisms and understanding the risks. You know, is it any riskier to use a local broker? when you assess that against perhaps using Goldman Sachs China or JP Morgan China? Is it riskier? Is it not? Is it cheaper? Is it not? So, so these are good questions to ask. And then uh, another philosophical point, we sort of feel that China is of course emerging and it has been growing a lot and becoming more influential. I, I do think that, that the, the financial community engaging with China 
can only be a good thing for progress and openness and, and the accountability of, of the Chinese government. You know, so for example, in our equity, uh, our Chinese equity fund, we started an equity loan only fund with an ESG mandate. We kind of think, look, you know, if you engage with Chinese companies with an ESG thesis right up front, and you say, look, I invest in companies that do business sustainably. That's fantastic, right? If these guys get used to that idea, you know, every CEO of every company responds to investment, right? And so China, there's at least these two angles. There's the client need to expand into um, an area that has become a big part of the global economy. And then there's the other side, which is, look, you know, if you engage properly with that new emerging global economy, you can actually hope to influence the way in which they behave. Mm -hmm. You know, American companies respond, uh, global companies respond to investment and to, to pressures from the, the, the asset management community, right? I often say that to people, look, there's $80 trillion of professionally managed assets worldwide. You want to make a difference to climate change? Do you go on a march? Or do you just tell your, your asset manager to really invest with ESG considerations in mind? And, you know, I, I suspect the second is more impactful. Even though personally, you know, you, you like to participate and you like to join in, but, you know, it's... Um, and so our Chinese fund, our Chinese equities fund, for example, is an ESG fund. And it's very hard to do ESG in China, right? Hard to find the data, to establish the scores, but, but we are really working at it and, and we've managed to achieve a good version there. Hmm. And so China, I think it's, it's an important topic, right? And uh, as I say, not easy, huh? not easy. You know, the contract negotiations is stuff that you can't read and you, you know, the language is difficult, the time zone is difficult, everything is difficult. I'm sure, I'm sure. And so, you know, you, you mentioned the environment is one, but more broadly, what, what risks and threats are you most concerned about today uh, in the world, in particular, as it impacts uh, your business and the future of your business and, and, um, and obviously your, your responsibility to your investors? Um, what, what risks and threats are, are sort of most top of mind? <sighs> Look, so if, if you think about risks and things that worry me, there's the the, the short-term, the medium-term, the long-term. I think in the short to medium-term, I am a bit concerned about, about the, the, the whole pandemic and the, the, in particular the way, you know, the psychology of people will, will prevent them from getting back to business and getting back to interacting. You know, we... We are a relatively small company. We have a, a lot of assets, but, but you know, there's only 110 of us. And that's been a, a great thing for us because we interact a lot. We, we talk to each other, we travel, we visit each other. We, we like to get in the same room to have a good discussion. And I, I get a bit worried that this whole working from home thing that people are perhaps becoming almost a bit entrenched into that mode that they, they forget. So that, that's the medium term worry. I mean, in the long term, of course, we all worry about sustainability of business, right? Climate change is the, the, the most visible uh, uh, problem resulting from lack of sustainability, but, but the big overarching problem is lack of sustainability. And, and that worries me. 
Um, I, I think that that is really, that, that is what I see, you know, I, I think that, that there's some smaller worries that I have. So sustainability is a big one. I think another, uh, perhaps a, 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 a notch or two below sustainability is just the, the idea that, that nowadays with so many divisions in politics and, and the, the, the rhetoric becoming so heated in, in so many forums, you know, that I think capitalism is perhaps getting a bashing that it doesn't deserve, huh? You know, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Hans Rosling. Hans Rosling, um, he was a doctor, right? A Swedish doctor, and, and he's written um, 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 of a fantastic book that talks about misinformation and talks about, I mean, he was into health policy. He was a very active health policy um, uh, a senior person and, and, and very active in Stanford, very active in Sweden. And, and he writes about how much progress we've made as a society, you know, how, you know, how, how good the metrics are for, for the, the global health, the global progress, you know, um, access to food, to water, to medicine, and, and all this basically on the back of a society that is that is free and that is is, is relies on private enterprise and I, it worries me sometimes that bashing capitalism too much is is a bit of a rash thing to do you know it, the, the the progress that we've made as a society is enormous so that's another worry but but i think top top of the list is really sustainability in business and and how we can influence businesses to to be more sustainable to to do the right thing and if I asked you the other side of that coin, like what, what excites you most about the future? What excites me most? Uh, look, you know, it's, uh, we have a lot of things going on here in the business. You know, I, I, I um, look forward to just, uh, you know, ideally uh, I would, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, in this industry for uh, over 20 years now. You know, this business is now seven years old from the spin-off point, which was 2015, even though, as you point out, some of the funds that we run are much older than that because uh, uh, we spun out from uh, Blue Crest Capital. I think, uh, you know, the, the future, the, one of the things that excites me is planning my own succession, you know, in, uh, in trying to, to um, uh, organize a, a, a a new leadership, somebody to take forward the, the company with the team and, and, and keep it going. I think uh, it's, a, it's a great business. It, it provides a, a good service to our clients. It provides a good environment in which people can, can, can thrive and, and, and develop their careers and, 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 and have a good time and be productive. Yeah. So, so I look forward to that. And, and so let me, you know, you manage a lot of strategies within Systematica. But what would be your highest conviction investments today? And, and more importantly, and maybe this is the best way of phrasing it, when you think about how do you allocate your own personal capital? Could you share <laughs> with us, how do you, like, what does Leda's portfolio look like? And, and, and even if there's some legacy stuff, if you had to rebuild your own portfolio today, what would it, what would it look like today? You know, so I uh, all of my money is in the systematic funds, right? But, uh, but I, I was having this 
said this chat with my husband the other day that I don't think we run an optimal portfolio at all because what happens is that we're going to see the new strategy and we need capital. So I follow my money into that new strategy and then some other strategy has a drawdown and it loses some assets. So I file into that one as well. And so, uh, you know, the reality is that all of the funds that we run here, I feel very, very comfortable with. They, they're super well run. They're very well controlled. Uh, you know, uh, counterparty risk is is very well managed. You know, personally, even when you if you park some of your money in one of the major banks, I mean, th there's a few things you don't control, right? So you know, we all saw the the, the headline news uh, with respect to the Archegos capital failure and banks losing a lot of money. So you know, these organizations are large and 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 they do business in a way that it's difficult to control. But but over here, that's not the case, you know. So so I feel very comfortable parking my money in any of the funds that we have. Uh, is there one fund that I have particularly high conviction in? Uh, not really. I mean, one of the programs that we run, the, one of the relative value programs, is in drawdown at the moment. So, of course, the, the fund that is in drawdown takes up a lot of our attention and a lot of our love. Uh, so, you know, if and, and because I do know that that fund is a very solid proposition and we are working beautifully to, to bring it back up, you know, if I had some extra money to put in, I'd probably put it in that fund because, you know, it's also very satisfying to be a bit contrarian, right? Like if you invest in the thing that everybody invests in and that thing goes off, you kind of go, well, but if you invest in the thing that you know has had a, a, a drawdown, but you know will come back. That is very satisfying. But but the yeah. answer to your question is, I don't, I, my money is kind of goes where it's needed and, and I'm very comfortable with all the funds that we have here. And, and let me let me ask you, um, just putting your uh, other hats on and you've been, you've sat on the board of, you know, the prestigious uh, pension fund, the CERN Institute, and you've uh, recently been gets invited to sit on the advisory board of the New York Federal Reserve and uh, it's to be determined whether you'll accept that or not, but what, what have you learned from some of those institutional experiences that might be relevant for families and private investors, which are basically on the call here today? Uh, what have I learned? You know, the experience in the pension fund of the CERN, that was a very interesting one because it was really being on the other side of the table, right? So we were allocating to hedge funds and to private equity funds and, and whatever. Um, I think that the one thing that, that I would say is this, you know, do, do your due diligence very, very seriously. And, and before you invest, ask yourself, what am I going to do if this investment draws down to the limit that this manager or, or this proposition is telling me? What am I going to do? What questions am I going to ask? You know, because, because I, I think, you know, back to the Daniel Kahneman thing, you know, you, you make those decisions objectively, looking at data. And, and, and that is the time that you can really develop your faith and, and be prepared because, because then if you can make your decisions and, and let them run, that is really ideal. You know, I, I, I noticed that in the, in, the, in the pension fund, you know, there was the, the, the board of the pension fund and then the board of trustees. I, you know, 
often the trustees get more nervous, right? And, and they require more reassurance, which I suppose is normal because they didn't necessarily um, implement the due diligence themselves. But, uh, but that is, that is my, my suggestion. Just work out what drawdown you're prepared to stomach, what questions you're, you're going to ask when that drawdown comes, because to be able to choose strategies and stick with them, you know, I mean, if you think about it, right, uh, the, the Blue Trend story is a good example. So Blue Trend, I mean, it's true that the whole CTA industry went through a tough patch, right? So Blue Trend suffered as well. But, but many investors stayed the long run. I mean, the fund is performing really well. It's, it's had a fantastic few years. You know, I mean, those investors, of course, we feel great that we have them, but hopefully they feel good too. And they walk back to their trustees and they say, look, you know, we stuck to it. This is it. It's, it's producing, it's come back again. And so it, it's just setting up a framework to deal with the emotions when the problems come, right? I, I would say right. that would be my advice. And so um, is there, is there, Leda, I mean, you've kind of uh, crafted your worldview over the years um, and your experiences as you've shared have contributed to that, but is there any specific book that you may credit uh, as having materially transformed your worldview or shifted how you see the world or a book that maybe you've given most to others? Yeah, so, so the, the, the latest book that I have read is actually the Bill Gates book, the, the book on climate change. But, but one of the books that, that I love is A Stumbling on Happiness, which is a, a Daniel Gilbert book. He's always a, he's a Harvard professor and, and he talks about decision-making. You know, basically he talks about, you know, the fact that we are all in this life with the objective of being happy, whatever that means, right? So objective of life is to be happy. And he talks about how we try to make decisions uh, that, that we think are gonna make us happy, but, but he sort of explains why we are so poor at judging what is really going to make us happy. And I, I thought that was fascinating. And, and there's quite a, 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 an analogy to, to the whole investment decision-making um, uh, side of things. And so, so that's, that's a, a very good book. Hmm. Um, so that's there great. we go. Yeah. And if, if, you could, uh, if you could be sitting down with somebody for you know, your own lunches with legends, and it could be anybody, you know, current, historic. Who, who might that be and why? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you who I would sit down with. You know, I, I often think that, you know, I, I've got this seat here, and it's a fantastic seat, right? And I sit at top 110 people, most of them smarter than me, you know. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not stupid. I'm not a fool. But, but these guys are super smart. And I, I kind of think that, you know, life gives you these leadership positions and you need to exercise them responsibly and productively for society and, and for those around you. And so, you know, I, I often think of Nelson Mandela, you know, I, I think, my God, you know, so this man gets put into jail and he spends 27 years in jail and he comes out and he leads this country. You know, he doesn't think about vengeance. He doesn't think about revenge. He just leads the, and I, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with him about what thoughts went through his mind, you know, what, what, you know, what was that temptation to just, because you see, if he was totally selfless in his leadership, right, he really went to reconcile the country, and I, I think that is such a good example of leadership, so it would be Nelson Mandela, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I know I have time for just one more question, 
And I, I have to end it on a light note because I've heard from some of your colleagues that you've been spotted cruising around London, <laughs> London on motorcycles. Um, so first of all, is there a truth to that? And second of all, are there other any other interesting hobbies you have? Anything else that you uh, generally do to unplug from um, the hectic pace of Systematica? Yeah, I, I love diving, actually, scuba diving, but I haven't been able to do it uh, much recently. Motorcycling is great. It's actually, it's something that I inherited from Canada because uh, when I met my husband, we met in university, you know, we've been uh, married a long time. Uh, he used to drive a motorcycle and, uh, and uh, he's an excellent motorcyclist. And so uh, I, I took up motorcycling as well, but, but um, I mean, he's that much better than me. But I remember, I remember asking him, look, you know, why did you come to the UK? You were born in Canada, it's a fantastic place. And he said to me, oh, because in the UK, you can ride a motorcycle all year round because of course in Ontario, it gets, when the snow really hits, you can't really drive a motorcycle, right? But uh, so, so yeah, no, I love motorcycling. I'm, I'm nowhere near as good as he is, but uh, you know, we, we lived in Switzerland for a while and <clears throat> I thought uh, it'd be nice to go out on the mountain roads with the motorcycle, but you know, the mountain roads are very technical. So yeah. you, you need to be very good at, you know, it's a little bit above my level really, but, but I love motorcycling, so there. <laughs> it's great. It sounds like, uh, yeah, you, you credit motorcycles for bringing you together. So it's, um, it's yeah. true, yeah, probably. <laughs> Leda, first of all, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your insights and your experience and your history with us. You really uh, appreciate both your generosity of your time and your wisdom and certainly hope we can do it again. Um, uh, thanks are all mine, right? It's a, it's a fantastic thing to have the, the contributions to the charities as well. That was really, it was fantastic to hear that. And then when Declan mentioned that, I thought that this is fantastic. So thank you for that as well. And, and thank you for the opportunity. for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our community. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting lunchswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.